There's another hymn that uh, we sing sometimes that uh, you're familiar with. It says, Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So I invite you to do that this morning. To turn your eyes upon Jesus. Don't look at the four hardened soldiers who stood by the cross. You read about them in verse 23. Don't look at the four godly women. There were four godly women who stood by the cross. And don't even look, in a sense, at the the disciple whom Jesus loved. We know him to be John, the son of Zebedee. No, we want to turn our eyes this morning upon Jesus. He is, after all, the focal point of the Holy Scriptures. He's described as the desire of all nations. He is the heart and soul of the gospel that we love. And we do well to try and understand what John is trying to teach us in this passage, and in particular, in his account of what Jesus said to him and to Mary. And I would suggest that there are at least three things that we ought to learn about the Savior from John the Apostle's account here. What we see, at the very least, is a watchful Savior, a righteous Savior, and a loving Savior. Those three things, at, at the very least. Think then about a watchful Savior. In verse 26, it says, When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Now, We should know then, and if you're a Christian, you should know this, that that when a sword pierces your heart and cuts you to the quick, the Lord Jesus knows about that. He is not unaware of the pain that you endure. He knows all about that. This was a moment that was predicted This was pain that Mary had been told would come. And at this moment, when her son was being taken from her in the most cruel of deaths, Jesus was watching and Jesus was aware. In the passage that we read to open the service, we saw that God told Mary through uh, the prophet that there was coming a time, there was coming a moment when a sword would pierce her soul. Down through the years, and especially in the last three years leading up to this moment, Mary would have felt from time to time the cold steel of that sword. She would have felt the sharp tip when Jesus was misunderstood. 
or when they said, you know, he's demon-possessed. She would have felt the tip of that sword when her family said that he was mad, or when the religious leaders began to try uh, to kill him. She would have felt the tip of that sword more keenly when they arrested him, and then when he was brutalized, and when he became the subject of a miscarriage of justice, and now he's crucified, now he is being put to death, and the sword runs her through. And now that prophecy is fulfilled, and now that moment has arrived full-blown. But even now, Jesus is aware, and even at this moment, Jesus is watching. And it's always that way with God's people. As it is with Mary, so it is with you. As it is with Mary, so it is with every generation of God's people, with every suffering child of God. The Lord Jesus is a watching Savior. He knows all our ways, and He delights in our paths. So we read in Psalm 37, the Lord delights in your path. He is aware of every step. He is conscious of every situation. He knows the pain and the struggle that from time to time you necessarily face. The Lord Jesus is aware. He's watching. He watches Israel as Israel labors and struggles in Egypt, and he hears their cry. He is not deaf to their agony. He's a watching Savior. And the Lord Jesus is with you when you pass through deep waters. Remember Isaiah 43. When you pass through the waters, he's aware of this. And when the fire licks at your feet, he knows all about that. You're never on your own, you see. You're never left to yourself. You must never think that you've been isolated. You must never think that you've been cast adrift on a lonely sea. Sometimes it feels that way. Sometimes it feels as if no one knows and no one understands and maybe no one cares, but it's never the case. The Lord Jesus is always watching. Hebrews 13 tells us that uh, God says to us, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And the writer says, therefore, we're not afraid. Because suffering is a fearful thing, you know. It's not always fearful. Some suffering is quite manageable. But other types of suffering are quite horrific. And we can understandably be afraid. And sometimes I watch people and I wonder why they're not more afraid. I watch Christians and what they're going through and I'm astonished sometimes. And of course the explanation is omnipotence. The explanation is that their faith is in God. That's why they're not afraid of bad news because their heart is firm trusting the Lord. And they know, you see, they know that their Savior is a watchful Savior. They know that His eye is upon them and that His everlasting arms are around them. And and so should you. And you should know that. You and I should be profoundly aware of that, and it should calm us. It should keep us at peace. It should put our heads on the pillow at night 
and allow us to sleep. And so here, when that predicted sword runs her through, Jesus is there. Well, that's the first thing we see about our Savior. Oh, he's a, a watchful Savior. Secondly, He's a righteous Savior. He's a righteous Savior. And that's the kind of Savior we need. You can't save yourself. You can't save anyone else because you're a sinner. I can't save you because I'm a sinner and in need of salvation. <clears throat> Mary can't save anybody because she needed salvation too. That's why she sang about God her Savior in her Magnificat. Now we need a righteous Savior. There were four women at the cross. There was Salome. She is unnamed here. She is the sister of Mary. And uh, we read in Mark 15 and Matthew 27, she's the mother of James and John and the sister of Mary. So Salome was there at the cross, as was Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, and now the woman Jesus focuses on, Mary, his mother. And he focuses on her because he has responsibility for her. Jesus has responsibility for Mary. Jesus, we know from Galatians, was born under the law. And the law says, honor your father and your mother. And there's a word to children as well today. You need to honor your mom and dad. You need to treat them with respect. And as you grow up and eventually you'll not be under their authority, you show them respect and honor. And you'll always honor your mom and dad. And when we hear you speak to or about them, we expect you to speak to or about them in an honorable way, in a respectful way. That's what God's Word demands of you. Well, Jesus was to honor his mother. And had the Lord Jesus said, well, let her fend for herself as he dies. Let my mother fend for herself. Let her just try and find her own way in this world. She would have been on her own, you see, when he died. Life was difficult for women in the ancient world, and especially for widows. You see, the fact of the matter is that Mary's husband, Joseph, was probably dead. And the other thing to note is that her other children did not believe as she believed. She believed in Jesus, her son. She believed in Jesus, her Savior. And she knew who he was, and she knew what he came to do. And she knew every time she called his name, he is Jesus, God saves, and we call him Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. And she believed that. The other children did not, we know from the Holy Scriptures. They did not believe as she believed. And so when Jesus died, she would, in a very profound sense then, would have been on her own, separate from her other children by virtue of their unbelief. And her faith. And so Jesus, as the eldest then, is responsible to look after her. 
And how is he going to look after her? How is he going to care for her? This woman in an ancient world, this widow, in a sense, in an ancient world, who is going to look after her if not him? Well, he can't commit her to these unbelievers at this point. He commits her and he commends her to the care of the disciple whom he loved. Jesus then is the faithful and loving son who honored and cared for his mother. That's an extraordinary thing. That's a wonderful thing. That's a righteous thing. That's a good thing. Honors his mother. Now the Catholics say something quite different. The Catholics say that Jesus is commending the world to Mary. And John represents the whole world. And Jesus is saying to the whole world, you are to be devoted to Mary. And this is their basis for Mariolatry. It's their basis, it's one of their texts they use to prove that we should be devoted to Mary and we should pray to Mary and we should say, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, and ask her to be with us at the hour of our death. However, this text will not bear the weight of that building that they've constructed. This is very creative, it's interesting, but it's not at all good exegesis. What's happening here? Well, Jesus is commending his mother to the care of the disciple he loves. Look after her, he's saying. And that makes sense because what follows is that the disciple then took her to be with him in his home. He began to look after her. He began to care for her. So that's what's happening here. And it's a wonderful thing. What the Catholics are saying is, develops into heresy. What we read here is quite wonderful in terms of what it says to us about the Lord Jesus Christ. We should read this with admiration, and we should read this with thankfulness. Because once again, the Lord Jesus obeys. And as always, the Lord Jesus is righteous. And as such, the Lord Jesus can be our Savior. He can be the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In verse 28, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scriptures, I thirst. All was finished. Everything that had to be done had been done. All that was required was accomplished. Every step of obedience was taken. Every law was fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness. Every command was obeyed. All the work that had to be done was done. And so you see the Lord Jesus is the perfect Savior. He's the righteous Savior. He's fulfilled all righteousness. He has borne sin and he has become righteousness. He has taken our sin upon him and borne the wrath we deserved. 
and his perfect life provides righteousness that can be imputed to us. We have a perfect Savior. See, the Lord Jesus, then, is a wonderful example to us. All the years he submitted to Mary, from the very beginning we know that he submitted to his father and to his mother. He was an obedient child. He was an obedient and respectful son. He was not a disgrace to her. We read in Proverbs that some children are a disgrace to their parents. You want to be sure that you're not a disgrace to your mom and dad. That you want to live by the grace of God a righteous life. You come to Christ and live for his glory. You don't want to be a disgrace to your mom and dad and a dishonor to your gods. Now, the Lord Jesus was never a disgrace to his mother. He was a good son. And more than that, he honored her and he cared for her and he watched over her. And even in his death, he commends her to the care of another. If you're not a Christian, this is the kind of Savior you need, you see. You have no righteousness to trust in. You have nothing to commend you to God. And were you to stand before God tonight, you would be condemned and you would be sent to hell. And if you never turn to Christ in this world and you come to the end of your days, and you come to the end of the world, and you come to stand before Christ on that great day which will inevitably come, and you stand there on your own, you will stand naked, for you will have no righteousness to clothe you, and you will stand naked in the sight of the Holy God, the righteous judge. You have no righteous robes to clothe you and to hide you from the piercing gaze of the God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil. For you will not have the righteous robes of Christ to protect you. So you see, you need a Savior, and you need a Savior who's righteous. Listen to William Cooper. He says, this heart, a fountain of vile thoughts, how does it overflow while self upon the surface floats, still bubbling from below? Let others in the gaudy dress of fancied merit shine. The Lord shall be my righteousness, the Lord forever mine. Let them go their way. They, they dress themselves in the gaudy dress of what they think is righteousness, their own conduct and their own lives, kind of the thing you're doing. Let them do that, that he says. But I shall trust in Christ. Let the Lord be my righteousness. The Lord forever mine. That's what you need. That's why this morning, before you take another step anywhere, you need to believe in the Lord Jesus. You need to trust Him for yourself. Make sure you're safe. Don't put it off as you've done now for years. These are not unfamiliar things to you. These are truths you know and you know well. But you've never trusted. You've never trusted yourself to Jesus. Don't delay. Don't put it off again. Don't walk out of this building again 
without Christ. How foolish that would be. How dangerous. Don't trifle with God, you know. This is the Savior you need. And if you're a Christian, this is the Savior you have. This is the Savior that you have. On our website, uh, on our Facebook page, we have a Facebook page, you know, folks. Providence Baptist has a Facebook page. Check it out. It's got a great quote on there from a man they called Rabbi Duncan. He wasn't actually a rabbi. They call him rabbi because he was a saved Jew. And um, so they just kept calling him Rabbi Duncan. Um, But he said this. He said, he's an old man and and he's looking over his life. He's reflecting on his life. And he says this. He says, I have never done a sinless action during the 70 years of my life. I don't say, but by God's grace, there may have been some holy action done, but never a sinless action during the 70 years. What an awful thing is human life. And what a solemn consideration it should be to us that we have never done a sinless action all our life. That we have never done one act that did not need to be pardoned. You have never done one act that didn't need to be pardoned. That didn't have the stink of sin in it. You say, well, wait a minute. I handed out hymn books today, boy. That's a righteous thing. Or I, you know, I did the children's talk. Or I preached the sermon on Jesus. Surely that counts. <laughs> well, everything is tainted with sin. Everything has the stink of some kind of corruption on it. And I've, you know, some sermons just ooze with pride. Just ooze with the pride of the speaker. Yeah, we've never done one perfect, righteous thing. Not one thing that doesn't need to be pardoned. Well, how glorious is it then that we have a righteous Savior. We have somebody who's taken our sin and borne borne all the punishment and he's provided us with the perfect robes of his own righteousness. That's just astounding. And that's something for which we should be profoundly thankful. So we have a Savior then uh, who is Jesus Christ and he is a watchful Savior and he is a righteous Savior. And lastly, He's a loving Savior. He's a loving Savior. Here He is. For 33 years, He's been showing love for the woman who gave birth to Him. And now, at the end, He is showing love to her. This is selfless love. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Sometimes we lose the wonder because we're so familiar with this, but it's an extraordinary thing to be dying on a cross and caring for someone else. Our natural thing is to be self-absorbed. That's just what we do. I've had a bit of a rough patch with my knee over the last few months, and, and I, know how, I know how easy it is to be self-absorbed. That's just... That's my thing. To not, frankly, care about you and just worry about myself. 
on the cross, he cares about his mother. This is selfless love. This is consistent love. He's been caring for her. We don't know when Joseph died, but it seems that he's died. And he's been caring for her. Would have been caring for her even before Joseph died, and certainly did after. And he's been caring for her up to this point. And the assumption is, as he transfers the care of his mother to someone else, the assumption, of course, is that he's been doing it all along. This is, consist- this is not a new thing for him to be loving and caring for his mother. This is not a sudden change in terms of his course of action. This is not, not something where she says, well, this is new. No, this is what he does. This is how he conducts himself. This is the righteous Savior doing what he ought to do and fulfilling every righteous command. No, he's always been caring for his mother. And now, at the moment of his death, at the moment when all of us would be so self-absorbed, he cares for his mother again and still and in an ongoing way. And this is characteristic love. This is characteristic love because not only does he love his mother, but he loves all his followers. Not only does he care for his mother, but he cares for all his followers. He cares for you. As with her, so with you. And you see, in a real sense, there's no difference between you and her. She's not the queen of heaven. That's a fiction and a lie And when the Catholics pray to marry the Queen of Heaven, they're, well, it's blasphemous. No, she's like us. She's a sinner saved by grace. And perhaps that's why he says, uh, woman, or dear woman, however you want to translate that, woman, behold your son. You see, she's his mother, but she's just a woman who needs salvation. She's one of his followers. She's one of those for whom he died. And he loves her and he loves you. And he cares for her and he cares for you. In Mark 3.35, Jesus said, Whoever does the will of my father is my brother, my sister, and my mother. The people who are his close relatives... Listen to this now, because this is extraordinary. The people who are his close relatives are his followers. You know, there are people, you know, they, there's some famous evangelical, and, and uh, there are people who like to be seen as close to these famous evangelicals. You know, we want to take a picture and so forth. And, but then you meet their family. You know, and the kids and the grandkids and the wife and the sisters. And, you know, they're the real close ones. They know him like no one else does. Who are Jesus' mother and sister and brother? Who is it now? Who's really close to him? Who are the, the close relatives of Jesus in this world? Not you. <laughs> I mean, it's you. You're the ones. You're the family. You're not the hangers-on. You're not the employees. You're not those who just hang out with Jesus. You're your family. 
You're the close ones. Whoever does the will of my father is my brother and my sister and my mother. His people, you, are his close relatives. So yes, as he cares for his mother, he'll care for his his brothers and sisters. And that's you. What What a privileged position you have. How remarkable it is, how wonderful then for a Christian widow in this world. How wonderful for a a single woman in this world. How wonderful for a suffering woman in this world. Jesus cares for you. Maybe no one else does. Maybe. Probably not, but maybe. Even if still he cares for you. And you can have no better than him to care for you. And no matter how difficult it gets, no matter how dark the day, he cares for you. And you know from Psalm 55 and from 1 Peter 5, you can cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. And of course, not just Christian women, but Christian men, Christian boys and girls, you can cast all your cares. Sometimes, sometimes children think, you know, mom and dad and all these older people, they just don't get it. They don't understand. You have things that you're struggling with. You have things that are really, really hard for you. And, and a lot of times, frankly, we older people, we forget how hard it is. We forget the things we went through when we were your age. And so sometimes we treat you in a way that's not really sensitive. We understand that. And it's you know, sorry. But you're never on your own either if you're a Christian. He cares for you. He watches over you. It's marvelous. Well, you know, we have a righteous, a watchful, and a loving Savior. A few lessons. A few lessons. First of all, remember that privilege and pain can live in the same soul Privilege and pain can live in the same soul. What do we see here? We see here the mother of Jesus, the one who bore and gave birth to Jesus. She is experiencing what the Bible calls a sword through her soul. Privilege and unimaginable pain. You parents know what it's like to see your children suffer. And you know, it's not just the saying, but you'd rather the pain be yours. You'd rather suffer in their place. You you know what that means. Well, she's watching him be crucified. How horrific. So privilege and pain. There's a poem I mentioned to you some months, maybe some years ago. It's about Mary, and it says... Then the spirit of the highest on a virgin meek came down, and he burdened her with blessing, and he pained her with renown. For she bare the Lord's anointed for his cross and for his crown. He burdened her with blessing. It is an unimaginable blessing to be the mother of Jesus. It is unimaginably painful to watch him crucified. 
pain and privilege in the same soul. And so it happens with you. It happens with you that you will suffer even though you're a saint. You will be pained even though you are privileged. And you must never imagine that your suffering is inconsistent with being a saint and that the pain is inconsistent with the privilege and that your having to go through these deep waters is inconsistent with the fact that God loves you just like he loves his son. Look, he put his son on the cross. And there are crosses you and I have to bear. And so sometimes the Lord loves us so much, he puts us through that pain. And that pain is the very expression of the fact that he loves us like he loves his son. It's not inconsistent. It's the very expression of love. So remember then that that privilege and pain can live in the same soul, can live in your soul and inhabit your life. Second, remember that even Jesus' family did not believe. Even Jesus' family did not believe. Part of what explains what's going on here is that the brothers and sisters did not believe. So, you have to be careful then not to blame yourself when those close to you have not yet believed. It is not necessarily your fault. Loving Christian parents almost inevitably, when their children don't believe, they almost inevitably blame themselves. If I had done this, if I had done that, if I had not been like this, and if I had been better in this area, and they beat themselves up relentlessly. Well, you know, the Lord Jesus was a perfect witness. They still didn't believe. And you're, you're, none of us is perfect parents, or is a perfect parent. But you know, they're born dead in sin. It takes a miracle of grace. You can be the best parent in the world. You can be the best Christian parent ever. Without a sovereign, raise this soul from spiritual death work of God, they'll not believe. And yes, there are ways in which we've sinned as parents, to be sure. I'm not denying that at all. I'm just saying, it's not necessarily your fault, you know. So, and the other thing to remember is that, well, eventually from Acts 1.14, we know that they did believe. And they were brought to Christ. And we have James, for instance, writing his book. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and it's wonderful. So let's just keep witnessing and hoping and praying and loving and being kind and manifesting Christ and and leave it in his hands and, and do the best we can and leave the results to the Lord. So we need to remember that then and remember that even Jesus' brothers and sisters did not believe. So don't lose heart. Trust the Lord. And lastly, remember that Jesus went about doing good. Jesus went about doing good. What's he doing here? Well, he's doing good to his mother. On the cross, he's saving her. When he talks to her, he's doing a good deed for her. 
When he says, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He is purchasing her redemption. When he says this, he's doing a good deed. And that was typical. Acts tells us that Jesus went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. God's with you. So, go and do good. You know, go about doing good to others. Go about and do good to people here. God's given you a family here. They're family, not just people who hang out with you at church. They're your family. Go and do good to them. And, wow, we're surrounded by people. Galatians says, go and do good, especially to the family of God. But then, of course, to others as well. And when we do that, we're following him. We're behaving like him. We're putting our feet in his footsteps. And we're going about and doing good, reflecting The beauty of Christ in this, oh, it's a terrible terrible world. It's an awful, sin-sick world. You're the light. You're the light. And you manifest Christ in this world. You show them the love of Jesus. Bring glory to him that way. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your kindness in Christ. And we come to think now about what he did for us. Not just a deed of kindness like this, but a work of redemption, work of salvation, dying for us. Oh, we thank you. Pray that now as we celebrate the table, you'll use it to make him ever more precious to us. We pray in his name and for his sake.